I'm going to give you a little bitty review. In Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, the house of Israel was described as rebellious, rebellious, rebellious. In chapter 5, the Lord explained that his people had rebelled against his judgments and they committed greater sins than other nations. They multiplied disobedience. They committed abominations and defiled his sanctuary. Well, we know that. In chapter 6, Ezekiel prophesied against the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the high places and the altars and the cities. Remember all those places. All those places were where the people committed idolatry. In chapter 7, that's when the Lord said, judgment is coming. The end is near. Do you remember? Did your Bible say doom? Doom is coming. So once again, there, the idolatry of Israel was declared. They made detestable idols and vile images from the treasures of the temple. The Lord's statements about the sins of Israel became more specific and precise with each chapter. It went from rebellion to rebellion against the Lord's command to idolatry all over the land to making idols themselves. And then what we've just seen is chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, where the Lord presented in the vision the precise actions of false worship that were going on in the city of Jerusalem and even at the temple. It's still hard to get your mind wrapped around that. There are several things in chapters 8 through 11 that catch our attention. The blasphemous worship of idols, the worship of idols and images and animals and foreign religious rituals and worshiping the sun. There was also the killing of all of those committing idolatry. Men and women, old and young, even little children. We also saw the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, leaving the city, moving out, and it was last seen over the Mount of Olives. What do we have? A bleak, gray, discouraging scene. The disgrace of idolatry. The death of so many. The departure of the glory of the Lord. It is bleak, right? But in the midst of all of the dark images, what is there? A bright, red, beating heart. It appears as the Lord promises to give his people one heart, a new heart, a heart of flesh. Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Ezekiel are alarming. They are disturbing and unsettling. Ezekiel shows that he feels that way, that he's worried, and he cries out loudly, Ah, Lord God, you're making an end to the remnant of Israel. He's alarmed at what he sees and at the death there of Teletiah. In his commentary, John Taylor says, For all of Ezekiel's outward appearance of severity, beneath the hard shell there was a heart that felt deeply for and with his people. He did not relish the message of judgment that he had to give, still less the reality that followed when the message was rejected. This was one of the secrets of his greatness. Though his forehead was made as hard as adamant, his heart was always a heart of flesh. 
Ezekiel had a heart for his people. And in Ezekiel 11:19, the Lord said he would give his people a new heart. I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. What is it about the heart of the Lord that moved him to do this? Well, you know the answer. God is love. He isn't a God of judgment and holiness in one moment and then a God of love and mercy in another. He is always at all times just and always at all times love. And there's a great mystery there, but this is our God. So tonight, let's spend a little time looking at the love of God. And then we'll look at our love of God. So I have two definitions for you. First, this is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. The love of God is that which leads him to express himself in terms of endearment toward his creatures and actively to manifest that interest and affection in acts of loving care and self-sacrifice in behalf of the objects of his love. He expresses himself. He in, expresses endearment. There are acts of loving care and self-sacrifice. God chooses to communicate with us and relate to us. He's interested in us. Another definition is God's love is that perfection of the divine nature by which God is eternally moved to communicate himself. It's not a mere emotional impulse, but a rational and voluntary affection, having its ground in truth and holiness and its exercise in free choice. And that's from Thiessen's Lectures and Systematic Theology. God is affectionate towards us. He demonstrates his affection with action. That is key regarding God's love. It is active. God's love is self-sacrificing. That was demonstrated on the cross. He gave his son and Jesus, who is God, gave himself. God's love is unconditional. Only Jesus is worthy of the Father's love, but God, the Father, loves the rest of us, even though we are not worthy. God's love is voluntary. He gives it by his own good pleasure and because it is in his nature to do so. God's love is unselfish. He acts on behalf of the one he loves. Grudem says, it is part of God's nature to give of himself in order to bring about blessing or good for others. So God's love seeks good for the one being loved. This is agape love, acting, seeking what is in the best interest of the object of affection. What is the good that God seeks? High, the highest good and the glory of his perfections. The highest good, God's best, 
is for lost, sinful, rebellious people to be forgiven of their sins, given new life by his spirit, given righteousness, adopted as his children, being transformed, being made new creations in Christ. This is the circumcision of the heart and the removal of the stone, cold, dead heart and the giving of a new heart that can actually beat for God. Another thing about God's love, because he is self-existent, his love had no beginning. And because he's eternal, his love has no end. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Jesus said to the Father, God, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So we see that God's love is everlasting. All of the attributes of God describe his love. God is holy and just and faithful and true. So his love, therefore, is a holy love, a just love, a faithful love, true love, love in truth. And just to make it all the more incredible, let's remember that God is infinite and he is limitless and his love is limitless. His love is incomprehensible. Even Paul could not explain the love of God, but he prayed in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, that Christ may dwell in your, well, I'll read the whole thing, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It's beyond our full comprehension. Well, who does the Bible say that God loves? He loves Jesus. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. God loves believers. John 16.27 For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. So those who believe in Jesus are loved by God the Father. God loves Israel. In Hosea 3, 1, the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. And even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So the Lord loves the sons of Israel. God loves the world, you know this, John 3, 16. New Living Translation, I'm sorry, the Net New English Translation says, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And God loves me. And you can read that in first person for yourself. <laughs> Galatians 2, 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's personal. I love that about this verse. That's who God loves. But how does God demonstrate his love? Romans 5, 5. 
says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So giving of the Holy Spirit is a demonstration of his love. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you believe it? I mean, we do believe it. <laughs> We've got to believe it. But it's amazing. The way that God loves is described in 1 Corinthians 13. And we often read this as how we are to love, but it is the way God loves. 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. God's love never fails. And in 1 John 4.10, we read, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Continuing here, thinking on God's love. To have a more complete understanding of God's love and how his love is demonstrated to us, we have to recognize that his love is demonstrated through his mercy and patience and grace. So think on that. His love, he loves and is good to us by showing mercy, not giving us what we deserve, but instead showing compassion. He loves us and he's good to us by being patient. As we saw in 1 Corinthians, love is patient. He's slow to anger. He restrains his wrath while he waits for sinners to repent. That's what 2 Peter 3.15 tells us. This is the New Living Translation. Remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. And God loves us and is good to us by pouring out His grace, which is His favor, unmerited, undeserved, but given as a gift. And there's one beautiful verse. Perhaps you're thinking of it already that blends all of these concepts. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, highlight that for now, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Think about all the blessings of God's love and consider this. It is God's nature to give of himself to those upon whom he has set his love and he will continue to act this way toward those he loves for all eternity. Now I've got three exclamation points in my notes on that one. <laughs> I love that. It is God's nature to give of himself to those upon whom he has set his love and he will continue to act this way towards those he loves for all eternity. We get to bask in the love of God forever. 
Wayne Grudem has made that statement in his systematic theology book. So God's love is amazing, isn't it? 1 John 4, 8 states, God is love. And that statement is true. It is true. But it has been twisted and misunderstood by those who deny the complete character of God. And some turn this statement around and say, if God is love, then love is God. But if love is God, then love itself becomes something that is worshipped. And love itself is idolized. And love becomes the reigning authority. You cannot turn that sentence around. God is love. That is true. You cannot flip it. If you do, the idea morphs into the heresy of universalism. And that teaches that since God is love, he will ultimately save all people. But God's perfection of love does not operate apart from his other perfections. Those include holiness and justice. God's love does not overpower his holiness. And it doesn't overpower his justice. So, God's love does not save someone who rejects Christ. God's love offers Christ. He offers salvation. But if it's rejected, then that person is rejected. But he's patient as we saw Second Peter. He's waiting. The offer is there until the moment of death of someone. So pray for those that you see rejecting the love of God through Jesus. The Lord called Israel to himself to love them and to be loved by them. Part of Israel's daily worship was the recitation of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. It affirmed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. When they made that statement each day, they declared their belief in the one and only one God. They declared their belief that he is absolutely unique. There's no one who can be compared with him. So the right response to this one and only God was to love him with all their heart and soul and strength. The Lord called Israel to himself to love them and to be loved by them. But they did not. They would not. They could not. Why? They needed a new heart because their heart was hard and rebellious and stone cold dead. In Ezekiel 8 through 11, we saw the reality of this. The Israelites didn't have a heart of worship for the Lord. And so in his active, benevolent love for them, he said he would give them a new heart of flesh. What we need to consider now, today, is are we who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, are we who have received a new heart, are we responding to the Lord as we are now able to do? 
Are we loving and worshiping our God who loves us more than we can comprehend? What did Jesus say is the first and greatest commandment? It's the same commandment that the Israelites stated every day in their worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We've been called to the Lord to love him and be loved by him. And that's what love is really all about. It's all about relationship. Do you realize that God desires and delights in you? He desires a personal, intimate relationship with you. God wants to connect with you. Look at Zephaniah 3:17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And Jesus wants this loving relationship and he's calling for it throughout his life and through his word. In John 15:9 and 10, Jesus says, "As the Father loved me, I also have loved you." Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what do you see here? Love and worship go hand in hand. They're heart to heart, right? When we love God, we will worship him. When we worship him, we're showing that we love him. We can be heart to heart with the Lord. Do you want that? What does the Bible tell us our worship is? John 4:23 says, "The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers." We've been given the spirit to worship him who is spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit so that we can boldly approach our holy God so that we can enter his presence and worship him there. We've been given the Holy Spirit to be able to worship deeply because only the spirit knows the deep things of God. There is mystery in our worship. Because there is something intangible and unexplainable that happens in the depths of our hearts when the Holy Spirit connects us to the heart of God. This is where love and worship can become emotional and moving and we can feel it. There's spirit, worship in spirit. But this verse says spirit and truth. They go together. We who are true worshipers will worship in truth. We've been given truth to worship our God. It's in his word. It's the truth about God that prompts us to worship him. Theology, the truth, brings doxology. That's praise. Knowing the truth about God, theology, brings forth praise to God, doxology. The truth about God will enable us to worship him 
even when we don't feel like it. Because that truth about God does not change. Even when our circumstances change and we change and our emotions change, the truth about God does not change. Job worshipped the Lord in those hardest moments. He said the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was one who feared God. He knew the nature of God. He knew the truth about God. And he was able to worship him in those worst of circumstances. Now is the time to consider God's word and his truth. To believe it. To know it. To know God as he is. So that when those hardest of times come. And when it's hard to believe the truth about him. When it's hard to feel like worshiping God. You will have a solid foundation upon which to stand. And from which to worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Worship him with all of your being. When you think about loving the Lord, do you think of confining it, confining that love to one day of the week or a special occasion or a special season of the year? Do you confine your love for your husband or Family, friends, anniversaries, just Valentine's Day, birthdays, or more often. How often do you show your love for the Lord? With this lesson in the title, Worship with Love, I am urging you not to separate your idea of loving God from your idea of worshiping God. Worshiping the Lord is not just a Sunday morning activity. Individual love and worship should be evident in your life every day. What does that look like? It is as unique as every individual is. Each of us have a special, extraordinary, extraordinary, one-of-a-kind relationship with the Lord. And I like the way Chuck Swindoll described worship. He used a line from A Sound of Music, and he says, The Mother Superior didn't know quite what to do with the young, creative, energetic nun Maria. And as she sang about her, she asked, How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? That's how unique Maria was. She was like a moonbeam. Swindoll says, In many ways, the true deep experience of worship is like trying to hold a moonbeam in your hand. There's no way you can define it or contain it. All you can do is let it shine. Let it sparkle. So what is your love life with the Lord like right now? Is it dull? Is it boring? Is it routine? Or is it sparkling and full of spirit and truth? And it's bringing joy to your own soul as well as to the Lord. To help us brighten up our love for the Lord and to worship him with a few more sparkles, let's look at a few verses from the personal journal of worship written by the psalmists. David, Asaph, and other authors of the psalms express their love for the Lord in ways that serve as examples for us. So we see in Psalm 5.1, As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. 
We should have times of corporate worship gathered together in the house of the Lord. Our worship is possible because of the Lord's mercy mentioned in this verse. And it also says we worship in fear, in awe, in reverence, in awareness and adoration of who he is. Psalm 22, 9 says, let the rich of the earth feast and worship. And it is not just the rich who will eat and worship. I just messed up a little bit on my PowerPoint that I should also say verse 26. So starting verse 29, Psalm 22, 29, let the rich of the earth feast and worship. But right before that, in verse 26, it says the poor will eat and be satisfied and all who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. So everybody gets to feast and worship. And you know what that means? Potlucks are for praising the Lord. Yes, they are. And you, you can worship the Lord at the dinner table with your family. Worship the Lord in fellowship with others. Worship the Lord when you get together and you go out to a restaurant. Feast and worship. We like that one a lot. Psalm 29, 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Our worship will focus on the name of the Lord, meaning his nature, his attributes, his character, his being, and we will give him glory. So we need to know about him and think of all of his attributes. Our worship will be about who he is. Psalm 66, 4 says, everything on earth will worship you. They will sing your praises, shouting your name in glorious songs. Of course, our worship can be expressed in singing. And it can be expressed in shouting. Try it. The focus is on the name, the nature, the being of the Lord. And this says everything on earth will worship you. Everything. So look around and worship the Lord in his creation. You know, no two fingerprints are alike. No two zebra stripes are alike. No two snowflakes, no two seashells have the same design. God's infinite creativity is fantastic and that can prompt us to worship. And even when I see something and I'm like, I do not like that bug. Yuck. Or that is not a cute fluffy bunny. It's a, a, a yucky like possum. Uh, why did the Lord make that? I have come to the point where when I get to that, like, God, why'd you make that? Like, well, you did. God, you were wise. You had a reason. And maybe it's just to direct my thoughts to you right now. Praise you, God. So even if you don't like the thing, if it's curious, let that prompt you to worship him. Tell him what incredible work he has done. And he knows why he's done it. Psalm 81, 9 says, There shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. <coughs> Our worship is to be of God alone. And we can't be reminded of this often enough. We are to cast down anything that sets itself up as an idol. Any thought that elevates itself above thoughts of God. And sometimes that might be our own perspectives of things. So don't idolize your own dreams, your ways 
your opinions. Submit them to the Lord. Psalm 95, 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. In your private worship and even in your public worship, your posture should reflect your humility before your maker. Bow your heart. Bow your head. Bow at the waist or kneel. Be on your face, humbling yourself and exalting the Lord. If you have not tried that, do that at home. Psalm 96, 9 says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Worship him in holiness. You are to be holy as he is holy. So is your life set apart? Not conformed to the world, but transformed by the word of God. Here, this can remind us that we need to confess any sin and ask if there is any sin in us to acknowledge and confess and repent of. And after confession, you can worship him as described in Psalm 102. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Worship him for forgiveness of sins. Worship him with joy, with happiness, with gladness. Worship him with a cheerful heart and a smile on your face. Just put a smile on your face and think, I am worshiping God with this smile. And people might ask you, what are you smiling about? Tell them I'm worshiping God. <laughs> we have no excuse. We have no excuse for not worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We have God's revelation of himself in our hands through his word. We have his spirit to give us understanding. We've been called to the Lord to love him and be loved by him. The stony heart has been removed and you have a heart of flesh. Let it beat passionately for your great God. Let's worship him with love right now. Let's pray. Our great God, holy, loving, wonderful, beautiful God, God our Father and Jesus, our Savior and Holy Spirit, you are the one who has given us life and made us a new creation and given us this heart that we can love you and obey you and know you and worship you. And I thank you for all that you are and all the ways that you have already shown your love and demonstrated your heart for us and desire for relationship. And I thank you that you have made a way for relationship with you, to know you, and to be known by you. Lord God, you are worthy of our worship, and you alone are worthy of our worship. So continue to teach us and make us aware of things in our lives that we let creep in, that distract us from worshiping, or that would diminish um, our worship of you. Lord, we want to honor you and let the world see that 
You love us and we love you. You're worth loving. You are. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. Your sacrificial love. We know you did it for us and now we are to love others as you have loved us. And I praise you that you now live in us by your spirit and you are the one enabling us to love others that way. So it's all about you and we, we just respond to you because you loved us first. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.